my big game that I think I really knew every single play was Tennessee. And if anyone ever goes back and watches that, you watch the TV copy, I call out almost every single one of their outside zones or any of their drop-back passes. Uh, they, had a, they had a bomb throw on a third and long on our side of the 40-yard line. And I turned around to our corner, and I said, it's about to be a fade to you. And I turned around and signal pass right to you. And Garantano looks at me and goes, no, it's not. And I look at him square in the eyes and I say, yes, it is. Watch. And he threw a fade right to the same guy, and we passed it down, and it was intercepted. And no, it was patted down, and we ended up getting off the field. The next series, he looks at me and he's like, how do you know? And they called it again, checked it. And I said, all right, outside zone, my side, bump, get ready. He looks at me and goes, no, it's not. Like Garantano said, no, it's not. I was like, yes, it is. And they did the exact same thing. We got a tackle for loss. Ended up getting off the field two plays later. Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Big pod today. I've got an interview with Arkansas linebacker Grant Morgan, a.k.a. the one-armed bandit. You just heard from him in the open. I've got the unbiased playoff expansion approach and how it applies to the news that we got on Tuesday. And then we're going to close with an extremely polarizing subject and figuring it out. Talking cardio, little mo cardio. But first, a question. Will, what are your plans for your 77th birthday? Uh, man, if I make it that far, probably, uh, probably strippers. I'll say it. Okay, just go for it. They're definitely going to be robots. Keep that in mind as well before, you know. Even better, bro. Let's make sure that's known. Okay. Okay. Nick Saban, he's got some plans for his 77th birthday. Tentatively speaking, of course, Saban's birthday falls on a Tuesday when he turns 77 on Halloween in 2028. But with his new contract that was announced this week, he'll be doing what he's been doing for the last 14 seasons. That is preparing or coaching in an SEC football game. I imagine that Saban is, and I don't know the numbers on this, but I imagine that Saban is one of the very few human beings about to turn 70 years old who has ever signed a contract to do anything for eight years. Like, do they let 70-year-olds, and I'm not trying to age shame here, but do they let 70-year-olds sign mortgages that long? I don't know. Maybe. Probably. Hopefully. Hopefully. That'd be kind of mean if they didn't. Say what you want about the new contract. It was well-timed because of the end of the dead period. We talked about that with Florida and Dan Mullen. You could say that he's going out on his own terms anyways, and this really doesn't matter. You could say yeah, he's going to coach until the robots take over. That's what I've been saying all week. Big it's robot all fair. podcast today. <laughs> Huge robot podcast. Two robot references in the first two minutes of the pod. That's how we roll here. Everyone is asking, hey, do you think Saban coaches through the remainder of this deal? Two years ago, I would have said no way. I've been on record saying that he'll call it a career in his early 70s. He'll pass Bear Bryant for ring number seven, and he'll have everything he could have ever wanted. That obviously happened this past season. It's crazy to think that Saban is the same age now that Bear was when he died after his final season coaching. I'm going to assume that Saban being able to live the way that he has and to still look as good as he does, and you see some of the flashbacks of 20 years ago, and you're like, oh my God, that guy hasn't aged a bit. I'm going to assume that's entirely the, 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 the uh, oatmeal cream pies. It's definitely all that and nothing else, maybe a little bit of the Weather Channel as well. Um, Saban is doing the exact opposite thing that we saw Roy Williams and Mike Krzyzewski do. That is, call it a career before the name, image, and likeness era gets here. 
If you were a non-Alabama fan holding out hope that something could prevent Saban from coaching deep into his 70s, that was probably it. A new contract doesn't necessarily mean that Saban is going to roll with what's sure to be the most drastic change to recruiting that he's ever had to encounter, but it is a sign that he's ready for the challenge. At least that's what Alabama wants to project to the outside world. And I don't need to tell anyone about Saban's A-plus grade in Connor's class of adapt or die. He's got it. It's there. It's locked in in perpetuity. Most probably, though, take it as like pass-fail. Saban doesn't really do that. That's not how he's wired. I answered this question last week before the extension was announced, and I'm not saying that Greg Byrne like read my column and acted this way, but hey, a guy can dream. Would Saban ever fade off into the sunset and do a year-long retirement parade and turn it over to an assistant like Coach K did? I'm going to answer that question in Spanish. No. No, 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 no. Saban doesn't even look like he enjoys when all the eyes are on him during that national championship trophy presentation. What in the world would make anyone think that he'd love some corny pregame handshake at Ole Miss wherein Archie Manning greets him on the field and hands him some commemorative coin that he awkwardly poses with? There's no chance that Saban would sign up for that. The guy would rather be on the phone with a recruiter watching film than going on some PR-driven retirement tour where he gets a year of people heaping praise on him. That's why the timing of that announcement was so perfect for Alabama. It can nix any notion that Saban is wired like a Coach K. You can't do the year-long retirement tour in big-time college athletics without the next coach in place. With the way recruiting works, that just doesn't happen. That's also the other half of this Coach K retirement thing. The guy turns it over to 33-year-old John Shire, who on a totally unrelated note is the best high school basketball player that I have ever seen in person. Shout out to the Northwest Suburbs of Chicago. First time I ever watched that guy play was back when he was in eighth grade. He put up 31 points in the first half, but back on track. Would Saban ever turn it over to an in-house assistant like Coach K did? Maybe in an ideal world, but would I bet on it? No, no way. As prolific as Saban has been with the coaching tree. How many situations would it have been widely accepted for him to turn the job over to one of his assistants? That number's two. Kirby Smart, Steve Sarkeesian. McElwain and Kiffin weren't ready for that kind of spotlight, and Pruitt wasn't going to step into that role because while he got the Tennessee job, it wasn't like he was one of their first two, three, four choices to get. So he wasn't ready for that, and hindsight obviously suggests that he wasn't ready for the Alabama job either. College football is different than college basketball, which is now seeing big-time jobs like Duke and UNC, Michigan, Indiana, Georgetown. They're all turning the job over to former players who don't have any college head coaching experience. Probably include Memphis in that group as well, though Memphis not necessarily considered a big-time job in the way that some of these others are. I think we look at Clemson with Dabo, Florida State with Jimbo, Oklahoma with Lincoln Riley, and Ohio State with Ryan Day, and we say that it's definitely possible for that to happen at Alabama. But the timing has to be exactly perfect, which it was at those places. And at Alabama, that's tricky because Saban doesn't retain assistance the way that those other programs do because at Alabama, you win a title and you go get a better job elsewhere. Kirby got the Georgia gig. Sark got the Texas gig. The only remaining member of Saban's on-field staff from 2018 is who, Will? 2018? Oh, man. I'm going to guess like an O-line coach. Not a bad guess. Pete Golding, though. Oh, the legend. 
the legend Pete Golding, they would burn the streets to the ground <laughs> if there was ever the slightest notion that Pete Golding was the coach in waiting. So what's my point in all of this? Instead of predicting Saban's demise or the succession plan for when he turns it over to the robots, which we know is happening, we should probably assume that the guy isn't going anywhere for a bit. And maybe some of the energy comes with winning a national title and the fact that COVID forced Saban to miss a game and there was all of a sudden that story afterwards where he's like, wow, I'm not ready for this chapter of my life. Maybe he really does have another eight years left in him. He's got a new hit. He's got a new contract. He's clearly not motivated by records and all that stuff. But if he is, you know, for those of us who are counting, he's got 67 wins to catch the Bear. He's got 90 to catch Bobby Bowden. And probably out of reach is Joe Paterno, 143 wins he would need to catch him. Paterno coached until he was 84. And I've long said that Saban will never be a shell of himself looking like that in the way that Paterno was in the, la the very late stages of his career. But... Could he do it? Could Saban do it? If I had to bet on one guy, he'd be it. If another 15 years, though, is a really long time. That's a long time. That would essentially mean that right now is only the halfway point of Saban's time at Alabama. And if that didn't just make every non-Alabama fan puke in their mouths, I don't know what would. Will, have you given up hope that Saban has an expiration date? Yeah, I... Um... <clears throat> I'll give you a Cajun grandma-ism. My grandma used to say, you can't kill bad grass. And, <laughs> and that's the thing about Saban. He's one of these guys that lives, eats, and breathes football. He's, you know what I'm saying? He, he doesn't have all these other things. I mean, he has like a very fulfilling personal life. I'm not saying that. But he's so motivated by winning that that's what there is for him in this life. So, yeah, I think that anyone betting against him uh, is I wouldn't do it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, for other SEC fans, I feel like we gave up on that dream 10 years ago, and we just assume he's going to become Darth Saban, just rule the SEC for 30 years, and then anything less than that is going to be good news. I think that's the only approach you can have right now. Don't assume any one event is going to be the make-or-break thing, and we like doing this thing where we project and any time he goes two years without winning a national title, go back to what was being said about him twenty after 2013 with kick six and then 2014 losing to Ohio State. Go back to what was being said about him, you know, maybe even going into the 2020 season and some of this stuff about, hey, you know, is, 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 he, is he losing his touch? Is he, is he on the way? Is he on the decline? We keep projecting the decline. It's simply not there. I know there are people listening to this who are saying, you guys talk about saving, you talk about Alabama so much. There's a reason for that, and there's a reason that we assume that this is just going to continue, and it's not a biased approach to, to say that when, obviously, the, the results speak for themselves. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Saturday Football Newsletter. If you haven't gotten around to signing up for the Saturday Football Newsletter, I'm giving you, listener to this podcast, permission to pause, take two minutes, and go do it right now. It might not even take you two minutes, depending on how quick you are on your device. All you do, go to your web browser, you type in saturday.football, that's it, no.com needed. You put your email address in there and boom, for no cost at all, you're gonna be getting the key headlines and nuggets to stay on top of 
all college football news throughout this entire offseason. It's only twice a week until things get ramped up. So we're not going to be like one of those coffee shops that you literally went to once while you were on vacation and you made the mistake of putting your email address in there. And now you get the daily updates from Epic Roasters until you hit that unsubscribe button. That's always the smallest, toughest place to find. This isn't that at all. I promise. You might be saying, hey, isn't, the boring, isn't right now the boring time of year? Can't I just wait to do that until the fall? I suppose you can, but why wouldn't you want to be a smarter college football fan this very minute? If you're listening to this podcast, I promise you, you're of that mindset. Stay informed with the Saturday Football Newsletter. Again, go to saturday.football, put your email address in, and I promise you'll be glad you did. Talk to someone about playoff expansion. Just anyone. I guarantee you that the majority of the time, their feelings about it will come out with a personal bias. Talk to an Alabama fan or a Clemson fan, and it's, meh, not really about it. Saban has repeatedly said that he's not for it, and he said, what about the Bulls? What about the Bulls? They'll lose all their significance. Never mind the fact that his team has played a non-playoff bowl game just once in the last seven years, and never mind the fact that college football just decided one day, hey, you know what we should totally do before we like settle on a correct way to have a normal national championship? We should avoid these anticlimactic endings to the season, where, and we'll just do this thing where we have trophies and we'll call them bowl games. Nobody else does it like college football does it, and that's okay. It's better than nothing. It's also better than a 64-team college football tournament. If someone tells you they want that, they're not very well-versed in the obvious challenges that would go with that and why it would kill the smallest regular season in, well, it would kill the smallest regular season in sports and the best regular season in sports in terms of games played. Or maybe that person just smoked a lot of weed and talked themselves into it. That stuff happens too. Nick Saban says, what about the Bulls? because it's a better take than saying this system works for us and everyone needs to stop crying, just get better. This system works for Alabama. The next system is gonna work for Alabama. And if Saban is still around for the next system after that, it'll still work for Alabama. This system works for Alabama because it's playing more football games. Football isn't basketball because you have to go 14 and one or 15 and 0, or yeah, I guess in Alabama 2017's case, 13 and one. There's also no football equivalent to the leading scorer getting his second foul five minutes into the game, sitting the next 10 minutes and totally changing the dynamic of a win or go home game. In football, the cream rises to the top. Some say that the system is what produces that and that there aren't any Cinderella's because of the system in place. Tell me then why the best team in the sport hasn't lost to a non-top 15 team in over a decade. That's not an unbiased take. That's just a fact. A biased playoff take would be a fan of a Power 5 team who has never been to a playoff saying, we need expansion to spice things up. They say that because they want their team to have a shot. Or rather, they want to sell the possibility that their team has a shot. Even if it probably doesn't. You know what would be super weird? If the new Pac-12 commissioner was like, expansion? Nah, we're good with this thing. I'm worried about the greater good of the sport. But he doesn't want that. He can give a rat's you-know-what about the greater good of the sport. He does give a rat's you-know-what about selling hope and lowering the bar so that every time Conference of Champions is said by non-Pac-12 folks, it isn't met, by, it isn't met with belly laughs. You know who else probably doesn't care about the greater good of the sport? The College Football Playoff Management Committee. They're the ones who have to make this decision, sort of. 
After all, the TV contract runs through 2025. The only way that changes is if all parties unanimously agree to make that change and essentially rip up the contracts and make new ones that'll inevitably be worth way more money. That's why even when people like myself last year were saying, oh, hey, we should expand the playoff for 2020. It makes sense to do this now. It was never going to happen because of all the moving pieces and the dollars at stake and the amount of people that would have to be unanimously on board. And admittedly, that take that I had along with others came from a biased place. I was a sports fan desperate for any live entertainment during the heat of the pandemic. While there was an argument to be made for that because of the lack of the Power 5 non-conference games, that was still wishful thinking. What's no longer wishful thinking is expansion. It won't be this year, it won't be next year. After that though, who knows? A lot of Power 5 teams are scheduling in preparation for this, and I've talked about that before. Home and homes are back after the decade of neutral site games. That's one of the potential benefits of expansion. There's an assumption that with wild card berths at stake, that you're going to have, even if it's an 18 playoff or a 12 team playoff, and we're going to get more, more on the 12 team playoff later, I promise, that you can get a two or a three loss team into the field. It actually does more to help you in non-conference play because if there are automatic bids for Power 5 champions, you could theoretically go 0-2 in marquee non-conference games and then go 7-1 in conference play and still make the field because of the potential automatic bids for the conference champions. I'll get to the downside of that in a minute, but look at some of these home and homes coming up just in 2025, that year alone. And these are home and homes, not neutral site games. Alabama at Florida State. Wisconsin at Alabama. That's right. Two big Power 5 non-conference games for Alabama. Bama doesn't play anyone? I don't know. They're playing. They're, they're going to start playing teams in the 2020s decade. Florida at Miami. Georgia at UCLA. Texas A&M at Notre Dame. LSU at Clemson. Michigan at Oklahoma. Texas at Ohio State. The home and homes are going to be like when you create your schedule on NCAA 14. Yes, sir. As They're going to be just like that. And, and that's going to be great. As a biased college football fan... I'm excited for that. As an unbiased consumer of the sport, it's worth mentioning why those games are happening in the first place. Seasons won't be determined by one game if we are to expand. Non-conference play is sort of like gravy time. It, it feels that way this year to a certain extent with this Clemson-Georgia game. It's a neutral site deal, yes, which is a bummer, and the hype will still be off the charts, probably as much as, or if not more, than any game all year during the regular season. But I was thinking about this the other day. How much bigger would that game be with the BCS system? I think we're all in agreement that it's not really a playoff or bust game because you look at the rest of Clemson's schedule and you look at the rest of Georgia's schedule and you say, well, they should be able to fare very well, and they should be able to run the table after that. Though if Georgia loses, I'll expect to hear Florida fans poke fun at the UGA hype train. And if Clemson loses, we'll see SEC fans mock the remaining schedule and ask if an undefeated Clemson squad is worthy of the playoff, or a team like Clemson that runs the table in the regular season. You get what I mean. And in reality, either team who loses is still going to be alive. If we're being unbiased, there are positives and negatives with what it'll do to non-conference play. If we're being unbiased, we have to be willing to figure out the best way for this thing to work. If that means blowing up divisions, cool. I don't know how much that really changes things though. Since 2017, Oklahoma, Clemson, and Ohio State all won their conference title game every single year. The Pac-12 didn't have a one-loss champ in those four years. That's excluding this past year 
5-0 USC, then lost in the Pac-12 championship to Joe Moorhead's Oregon squad. I'm just saying. Um, but that doesn't really count. The SEC has actually been the conference with the most variety. Three different playoff caliber conference champs in those last four years when, all, when those three other Power Five conferences have been really, really boring. Go figure that when the playoff was put in place, it was because of SEC fatigue. The biased fan approach was that the BCS favored the SEC and we needed a new system that wouldn't do that. The people who are bored of this system, which I get, are also probably blaming the SEC for that to a certain extent, even though the SEC had more variety in the playoff than any other conference. That's why you'll hear SEC fans argue that we don't need expansion. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. The ACC is in a weird spot because like the SEC, it also made the playoff every year of its existence. And those are the only two conferences who can say that. But you know what the ACC is probably a little sick of hearing about? And I don't blame them, but it's true. It's Clemson and everyone else. It's true, but it still makes the idea of playoff expansion intriguing because you can have one of those wildcard teams in there. That's why new ACC commissioner Jim Phillips, the former Northwestern Athletic Director who many thought was going to be the Big Ten commissioner after Jim Delaney, he seemed very on the fence about expansion and he maintained that he's not against it. He had this quote via ESPN and I think this is really interesting for all people to hear. Here's what I would say about expansion, and I'm not against it. I want to have the conversation and I want to do it really thoughtfully. I don't want to just rush into, yes, we have to expand. I want to know more, and I think others deserve to know more before we make a sizable decision. But what does that look like? How many more games is that? Is that one more game for two teams? What does that do from a student athlete perspective? How does it affect our calendar academically, yada, yada, yada. How does it affect our calendar with the regular season? Are we playing too many games? If you count non-conference, conference, and then into the college football playoff and our bowl system, blah, blah, blah. And then he talked about the bowl system, how it's worth saving, the point that I brought up that Saban has been making. Is he right to bring those things up? Absolutely. If Phillips is talking himself into this, with the ACC repeatedly getting left out of the playoff, he's he's probably banging the expansion drum until we're deaf. Like he's if he's talking about you know the ACC in the same way that that the Pac-12 has been talked about, it's very different. To be 100% honest, while I think expansion is inevitable, and again we'll get to more of that in a minute here, I think the unbiased person should realistically break those things down that Phillips brought up. It's okay to be skeptical of how this thing is going to look. If we're just doing it because Florida, Penn State, and USC, if those teams are tired of getting left out, I think that's kind of weak. I don't know. I'm not necessarily in that camp. Again, I don't necessarily have a dog in the fight in the same way that some others do. But in the end, the point that biased parties with a vested interest will probably end up coming to some sort of agreement on this, there's value in selling hope. That's probably what they're going to end up deciding. It's beefing up the non-conference schedule. It's getting national headlines deep into November. It's selling a head coach with playoff experience. It's selling that your team is good and that it's one of the cool kids. That's what college football has always been about. We're just now trying to make those decisions with exponentially more money at stake. That's the biggest difference in all this. The resistance is fueled by a desire to avoid a watered down product. As a biased college football fan, There's part of me that hates the thought of that because once it goes to eight or 12, it's not going back to four. And if we see some of these issues play out, that's not good. 
It never, just like what we talk about with expanding the amount of games in professional sports leagues, they never go the other way. It's always more games, more games. As a person who works for a college football website with a predominantly SEC following, there's part of me that's really giddy thinking about four SEC teams with playoff hopes in late November and the content that those fan bases would want to consume. I don't expect people to put biases aside when thinking about this decision. Joe from Columbus isn't firing off tweets like, you know what, it's messed up that my Buckeyes didn't have to play a full schedule. Put Texas A&M into the playoff field committee. We all have our biases, we do. It's true in politics, it's true in sports. No matter what side of the fence you're on with playoff expansion, it's okay to acknowledge that this isn't as simple as pro-expansion guy being like, would you watch it? And it's also not as simple as anti-expansion guy being like, they're only doing this to make more money. I'm already pre-sick of the arguments that'll be made about ratings either for or against expansion when it happens. The ratings narrative, goodness gracious, I can't stand that. <clears throat> we just or need like, a moratorium you know, on talking ratings in sports because it's never done with good, good intentions. It's always a bad faith argument. If anyone's ever talking about ratings online, it's to push an opinion that they've already had. Yes. Don't need to hear. Don't need to hear. Or also that like what will what we'll hear if the field is expanded. If there's like a six seed who beats a three seed, it'll be like, see, take that anti-expansion crowd. You know <laughs> that that's gonna happen. It's inevitable. Will, have you picked which side of the argument that you're going to take on that yet? Um, you mean like pro versus anti-expansion? Yeah, or like if you're going to be the person who's going to like troll and, and like troll one side versus the other. Because, you know, you like to partake in that from time to time. If something maybe doesn't look the way that some thought it was going to, you're, you're kind of the guy to, to piggyback on that and let people know that, hey, y'all were saying this at one point. Now I'm saying this. Oh, I'm going to troll every side. I don't care. I'm going to take a bunch of opinions oh and think about, they can all, it's mutually exclusive. That's the thing. Someone's always worthy of being trolling. It's just that person's time. <laughs> I like that. That's really good. If and when expansion does come, let's normalize skepticism. We'd all be better off trying to yes, figure clean. out, <laughs> we'd all be better off trying to figure out, or at least understand that side of it, instead of burying our heads deeper and deeper into our own biased takes. So, okay, so let's apply all of that to what we found out on Tuesday. According to Yahoo's Pete Thamel, a 12-team playoff is the leader in the clubhouse. And the next three weeks are going to be huge in deciding what the future is going to look like. And it's important to note where that report came from, why Pete came out with all those different things. He talked to university officials, athletic directors, media executives, and others involved in that process. And the takeaway was that there's going to be this that there's already this openness to a 12-team playoff. Again, this current contract doesn't get ripped up unless all parties are on board. That's why it doesn't matter if the Pac-12 is the only one sitting in the corner crying about not getting included. This 12-team model, exactly. That's their job, it's model. in their bylaws. We have to sit in the corner and cry. No matter what happens, y'all got fans, we gotta cry. You want a small playoff, gotta cry about that. Bigger playoff, oh buddy, get ready. The bigger playoff, though, I don't think they're going to have a reason to necessarily cry. And there, there were, if you go back 2016, there would have been three, three Pac-12 teams in the field, which would have been like, are we in the golden age for the Pac-12? <laughs> are are our we friend, really the Mike conference McIntyre. champions? We've done it, boys. We're here. We've made it, Ma. 
Mike McIntyre would have been in the playoff. I actually looked, went back and I looked that up, and his Colorado team would have gotten into the field. Who knows if we would have been talking to him as the defensive coordinator of Memphis had that been the case. I don't know. Lives could be changed. But the point is, is that this takes everybody getting on board. The 12-team model appears, at least in my opinion, to check a lot more of these unbiased boxes than the 18 model. The report outlined that they're still figuring out the exact structure of it. So this is all very hypothetical, of course. But the general idea for the 12-team playoff, if you haven't seen this yet, Power 5 conference champs would get automatic bids. The highest-ranked group of five team would also have an automatic bid. And then you'd have six wild cards. You'd have the top four seeds get a buy. So it really kind of still appeases the supporters of the four-team playoff. That's one of the good things about it. And then everyone else would be ranked or seeded, however you want to call it, 5 through 12. So you'd have a 5 through 12 matchup, 6, six versus 11, 7 versus 10, 8 versus 9, similar to the NCAA tournament. The better seeds would get to host in the round of 12. How would it look with bowl games like the Rose Bowl and whatnot? No idea. Still figuring all that stuff out. The unbiased approach would say that the bowl games not involved in the playoff would take a significant hit. But this would also address those non-playoff New Year's Six Bowls. Take a team like Florida this past year. Instead of playing in the Cotton Bowl and having your three best pass, catch pass catchers opt out, you would have been given a playoff berth. Florida would have made the playoff each of the last three years with a 12-team playoff. Just saying. A biased Florida fan looks at that and says, great. The unbiased approach would point out that we'd be introducing a system that would have rewarded a team who lost two consecutive games going into the playoff and would have had three losses. If this would have played out last year, here's your field. Bama, Clemson, Ohio State, Notre Dame, they, they get buys. That's not really changing. Remember, we aren't assuming that winning a conference title is a prerequisite for a buy. It just means that you get an automatic bid into the 12-team field. So then that means that 4-3 and three Oregon, Joe Moorhead's Oregon, would have gotten a bid as the Pac-12 champ. Oklahoma would have gotten another automatic bid, but they wouldn't have been given one of those buys. As Cincinnati would have also gotten a bid, being the top-ranked group of five teams. So they get that automatically. So here's what the matchups would have been if you haven't already done this or played this out yourself. Based on the unbiased final college football playoff rankings, maybe they're a little bit biased, I don't know. Number five, Texas A&M against number 12, Oregon. Number six, Oklahoma against number 11, Indiana. That would have had a couple of eyes um, uh, from my alma mater, just, just a little bit. Number seven, Florida against number 10, Iowa State. Number eight, Cincinnati against number nine, Georgia. Just so the anti-SEC crowd is aware, that's four SEC teams in the field. All of them, by the way, would have been favored to move to the round of eight. I don't know if you reseed after that or how that would work. My guess is probably not. But the next round, if you weren't doing reseeding, would look like this. You'd have Notre Dame versus the A&M Oregon winner. Ohio State versus the Oklahoma-Indiana winner. So you could have potentially an Ohio State-Indiana rematch. Again, people back in Indiana would freak over that. Probably wouldn't happen, but that's beside the point. Clemson against the Florida-Iowa State winner. And then Alabama against the Cincinnati-Georgia winner. My biased approach as someone who makes college football content for a living says, give me that right now. I listen to those matchups and I'm like, let's go. I just thought of roughly 10 different potential storylines with those matchups, all of which would be intriguing in their own unique way. Our website would eat 
that up. There's no doubt that having four SEC teams in the field would be great for business. By the way, I ran that model for 2019 as well. Memphis would have had an automatic bid as the top ranked group of five team, even though it was only number 17 in the country. And Auburn and Alabama would have been ranked number 12 and number 13 respectively. They would have been the first two teams out of a 12 team field, while a group of five team with a loss would have made the field. People say, oh, SDS just loves Bama. The bias approach to that actually, from my perspective, is our site would have gobbled up all of that content because those reactions would have been off the charts. Will, you know how the internet works, is that accurate? Oh, that sounds amazing. I wish I had a time machine so I could just propose that. Um, I'd say this real quick on playoff expansion. I think that overall, man, it's this might just be like the sports marketing guy in me, it's about money. Like, I feel like these guys, you know, they're talking about, oh, the exams and the student athletes and X, Y, and Z. It's like, they're probably going to expand because it makes them money, ultimately. And so, I hate to say that, but I feel like it's true. And, and I think that, you know, the best thing in the world for these teams, like 2017 UCF, is to never actually have to play Alabama. You know, I did that whole thing about playing these teams. The best, the coolest person in the room is the backup quarterback, right? That's the situation that these teams have been in previously. Oh, well, if there would have been a playoff in 2010, this would have happened. Oh, TCU would have made it. Boise would have made it. Da, da, da. And I feel like you, you kind of look at it, and it's like, I'm so for those teams getting a chance because it's almost like they get more clout for being left out, if that makes sense. Um, and so there are some teams, you know, that you can look at like a, uh, like a 2011 LSU. I would have wanted no part of that playoff of 2011 LSU because that was a flawed team that could have gotten exposed. But on the other end, you look at like a 2020 Georgia, the way that they were hitting their stride at the end of the year, you would love to see that. So I think at the end of the, at the, end of the day, you can build in these advantages for the teams that have always been there, right? You, you, you know, not even factoring in the like recruiting advantages and stuff that Clemson and Alabama have. And if one of those teams loses to Memphis, I don't feel any type of bad. You know what I'm saying? I, I think that the advantages are still there, and I don't really see who loses in these environments because to be able to say, oh, we were the SEC championship participant, that was a big deal. Okay, well, then go play Alabama again. You know what I'm saying? Like, I do think that there is a lot of, like, the vast majority of the clout in college football is made up. That's one of my opinions. And I feel like that all of that goes away when you actually have to play those teams that you say, oh, we are, a, we are an extra point away from that team. Oh, well, if this had happened differently, we'd be there. It's like, all right, buddy, you're there. Let's see it, man. Those are all fair points to bring up. And I think as we talk about the group of five, I, I get that having a group of five team in there is great. But if we're rewarding a team that, like in the case of 2019 Memphis, would have had a worse ranking, isn't that sort of a flaw in the system? And aren't we saying, well, we're just giving them a, a free pass because they're a group of five team or because they're from a specific league or a specific conference? Fan bases are still going to feel like their team got a raw deal. That's not going away with the 12-team model. Oh, if you feel that way in the 12-team model, I'm hearing zero words of that. I literally don't care. Like, and in previous years, it's gonna happen. we could sit here and talk about 04 Auburn. We could sit here and talk about 2011 OK State and say, well, these guys really got hosed. If you can't get to number 12, bro, I feel no type of way about you. Okay, so here's the other point of this, though, and why there are, there are fan bases who... I'll, I'll just speak on... Talk about your fan base specifically at LSU. I ran that model for 2019. Florida and Wisconsin would have played in the 8-9. LSU would have had a first-round bye, would have been the one seed. 
So they would have been matched up with the winner of the Florida-Wisconsin game. Florida would have theoretically had to go to Wisconsin in December and play a game up in Camp Randall, which would have been a great sight to see, and Wisconsin would have been able to host that. And but, then Dan Mullen would have okay, been a global warming specialist. He would have been like, no, you see, this fair. is why this is unfair. You, if you look at the polar geists here. Was that your Mullen invitation? I don't know what that was. <laughs> All right. We'll punt on that one for now. We'll, we'll workshop that. We'll workshop that. So let's let's say Florida. So if Florida had beaten Wisconsin. Again, we're talking about 2019. Florida beats Wisconsin, then Florida would have had a neutral site matchup against LSU in the round of eight. Florida would have had two losses, one of which was a regular season loss to LSU. Florida didn't win its own division either. Now they just get a neutral site game against LSU. Like none of that happened. The unbiased approach says that that's kind of messed up. That's a step further than what happened this past year with Notre Dame and Clemson, who faced off in a rematch because of what happened in their specific conference. But the rematch wasn't in the playoff. The rematch was in the conference championship game. What we haven't seen in the 14 model is a playoff game that we already saw play out in the regular season. Run through the past years, and you'll see that if we were to get a 12-team model, rematches would be inevitable. They would happen. Biased approach for the team who won in the regular season says that that, that situation sucks. And biased approach for the team who lost in the regular season says that's, a, that's great. That's awesome. Unbiased approach says there's good and bad with it. It's great for storylines and interest. And it's bad for the integrity of the regular season. All these things that we've been told are supposed to matter to a certain extent. Unbiased approach points out that there's now a model in which a playoff team without a bye is asked to play 17 games in a season. If the current 12 team or the current 12 game regular season and conference championship model sticks, which again, I think that that's going to be the case given the way that they've talked about conference champions having automatic bids. The NFL just expanded to 17 games. Eight years ago, the max amount of games that a college team could play in a season was 14. We had teams win titles in the 21st century who only played 13 games. 20, 2001 Miami, they were 12-0. Now we're asking the, the champions, potentially, if they don't have that first round bye. Well, actually, either way, you're asking the champion to play either 16 or 17 games. That is a lot for college kids. You'd have to figure out the best timeline for that. Maybe you can do what baseball does in September where they, they, they beep up the, the, the rosters and they have the September call-ups. Maybe you have expanded travel rosters. I don't know. Maybe we go back to 11 regular season games. But if I'm like Kansas or one of those other schools who's not competing for a playoff spot, do I sign up for that when it could wipe a game of home revenue off? Because that's something that these athletic directors are going to be thinking about and they're going to be talking about. Or would it instead be like the majority of Power 5 teams would be more intrigued and more optimistic about possibly making a 12-team playoff that it would offset any of that resistance, which would only come from the bottom feeders anyway. I don't know. That's why even the most biased pro-expansion person has to be critical of this. As hard as it is, try to put your own self-interest aside here. We all share a bias of loving college football. You don't have to be just the pro-expansion crowd or the anti-expansion crowd. You can just be the unbiased crowd. Well, I realized that was a lot. Any closing thoughts on that? Did I, did I trigger some angry hindsight tweets about the idea of LSU having to beat Florida again in 2019? Oh, no. Because that's the thing, man. If you believe in your team, I fully believe they would have beat them by more points the second time. And I'll give you a great example of this. Um, the Saints with the Bucks, right? 
So the Saints not only beat the Bucks, obliterated the Bucks, made people not believe in the Bucks twice. I yep. mean, the first one looked like, oh, Tom Brady's like, you know, doesn't have any more. They're getting it together. There was no, like, it seemed like it was a fluke. Then the second one happened and it was even worse. And as a Saints fan, I was thinking to myself, all right, we're better than this team. Let's go prove it in the postseason. That didn't happen. And I didn't sit there after that game and think, oh, wow, we beat them. We beat them twice in the regular season. This shouldn't count. I thought to myself, we embarrassed this team twice. We let them come to our building, and they embarrassed us. That's our fault. You know what I'm saying? Period, point blank. If that's your team, you shouldn't be scared. If you think that your team is the best team in college football, like LSU was in 2019, you shouldn't be scared of a matchup. And I think that's the same criticism we give, you know, Clemson and Ohio State is that, oh, they're scared to play X, Y, and Z. So, I don't know. I think that that's something in college football that when you know your team is special, you shouldn't feel any type of fear to play, you know, West Virginia or whoever is hot that year. If that team beats your team, and like I said, like in 2011, that team wasn't as good as we thought it was. And if they had played OK State, they would have won. It would have been a championship, and I would have lied to my kids about them. But that's why college football is great. You know what I'm saying? That's true. And you know what? I think that's... For people who are definitively, no, I don't want expansion because of what it's going to do to the regular season. There, there's a couple parts of this, and, and I thought about this a lot. The regular season game that's played in late November with a pair of unbeatens, it's not going to have the same sort of significance. Go back to uh, you know, game of the century, Michigan-Ohio State. Go back to, to, to what was, cons- I mean, every game is the game of the century, but that, that game was two unbeaten teams, and it's going to create a path to the national championship. That game in a 12-team model is just different. Oh, no, we're going to devalue Michigan-Ohio State. Oh, a really back-and-forth rival. We can't lose that. Back then, it actually actually was. But this is, you know, we're obviously talking about 15 15 years ago here. What, What I would say to that is, yes, that part's a bit of a bummer. We talked about that with with Leon Searcy, about how, you know, Miami and Notre Dame Catholics versus convicts felt so big because everybody knew what it meant. And that's what that's the fear that people have is we won't get those regular season moments like that. Where I would push back on that and say, we're still going to have these big time moments. They have incentivized, at least in this model, based on what we're looking at right now with buys, with those four teams getting those buys, with being in the field and what it means to win a conference championship. Still winning your conference championship is very important. It's an automatic bid. It's not having to sweat out Selection Sunday. And if you still have those incentives in place where it's not just about the automatic bid and winning your conference and stuff like that, there's more to it than that. You still have a lot of incentive in place. And so I know people are going to say, well, then you're basically you're, you're allowing these teams like 2020 Florida to get into the field. And they, didn't make, they didn't deserve to make the field. I, I totally get that. I do. But if you're saying that the regular season is all, is all of a sudden just going to be totally useless... I would push back and say that we're going to just value this in a different sort of way, and there's still going to be a ton to play for in these games. Like, imagine if you're playing for a potential buy, if you're trying to get into the field and you're trying to still have a path to be able to win a division title, those things are still going to matter. So, well, I'd say real quick, that though, hopefully is the unbiased approach. Off of that, though, you actually make a really good point is that uh, like a spoiler game wouldn't matter because you look at like the shoe game last year, right? Florida still would have made the playoffs. You look at a program like Pitt that's made their whole program living off of being a spoiler. And if you beat one of these elite teams once, that might be their whole Mm. season's over with. So, honestly, that's the thing I would miss the most is, you know, right now, being a great college football team is about being perfect. If you're Alabama and you get upset, you know, against South Carolina, you don't get to play in the national championship game. Like, sorry, try next year. But now it's like, well, if one of these teams 
jumps up and, you know, scares you, you just get another shot, and it's as if that never happened. You don't think South Carolina still celebrates like it just won a national championship after beating Georgia in 2019? Because I do. I do, but you see what I'm saying. It those those yeah, those yeah. things are really makes college football great. Is that these random programs like you know Pitt can upset Clemson? And it's like all right, well that's it for Clemson. Pack it in. True. Yeah, Pitt Miami too. And uh, <laughs> Nar- Nar- Pat Narduzzi called his shot at halftime of that game, the regular season finale. I'll never forget watching that on on Black Friday, and Pat Narduzzi just comes out of the halftime locker room and he's like. We're gonna upset. We, you know, we upset them back in 2007. We were the spoiler. We beat West Virginia, and, and today we're gonna do the same thing. And then he just like walked off, and you're like, "Oh my god!" And then he did it. That was unbelievable. That you're right. Th- those are moments that probably, you know, they're still gonna be celebrated, but they're not gonna be dissected in the same sort of way. So there, there are a lot of moving pieces with this. We're gonna have a lot more news on this, I think, over the course of the next three weeks or so. All right, let's go to my interview with Arkansas linebacker Grant Morgan. Great, great dude. It's been really fun to kind of learn his story. Guy goes from a walk-on to just one of the most beloved players that Arkansas has had in the last decade at least. Uh, Somebody that is so, so very, very beloved in that state. I know that. And the fact that he came back for a year six really meant a lot to those people there. So here is Arkansas linebacker Grant Morgan. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Arkansas linebacker, first team all SEC selection and the nation's leading tackler in terms of tackles per game. It is Grant Morgan. Grant, a few months ago, you did something that was truly incredible. You stole Christmas's thunder and announced that you were taking advantage of the free year of eligibility, coming back for year six, but you did something else, and maybe without knowing it, for all the people across the state of Arkansas who were searching for that small talk with their relatives at Christmas parties, you gave them a topical conversation starter. Was that basically just like your way of being a man of the people? Yeah, I guess you could say that. Uh, you could put it however way you want to. Um, I know Christmas is a very special moment for me and my family, and I wanted to make it special for everybody else, and I wanted to be a part of it, and I wanted to give everybody something to look forward to because we didn't get to play in a bowl game, and it was kind of around that time when we found out. So uh, when we when we got it and we posted it, it was uh, really good to see the fans' reactions and. I definitely, I was the talk in my family the whole time too, so I know exactly how everyone was feeling. <laughs> uh, you became just such a fan favorite last year, and, and if you asked anyone, who's the heart and soul of that Arkansas team, they were going to answer with Grant Morgan. I mean, that was obvious. That was very much solidified with the, the famous one-arm bandit game. And for those who don't know or maybe missed us talking about this last season, Grant went out against a red-hot Ole Miss offense, and he's wearing this this massive arm brace, and then he proceeded to you know do what standard humans we, human beings would do, which is 19 tackles, three tackles for loss, a sack, a couple of uh, pass deflections, and a pick six. Tell us the backstory of that. How close were you to not playing in that game? Um, so it goes back to Mississippi State, the game we won there is when I heard it, and I just put a brace on it and just kept playing and it was I was pure adrenaline and when we got back my arm never felt the same uh we would talk to trainers every single time they're like can you go and I was like if my arm's still intact I'm going uh they're like well it's gonna hurt like crazy we're gonna try to brace you up as much as we can to put a padding on it but it's going to hurt this is gonna be the most pain you'll feel in a while I said as long as my arm's together I'm going so um and that's just type of guy I am I just don't want to miss out I don't want to be on the sidelines watching people play 
Um, I want to be a part of our team no matter what happened that game. If I would have had zero tackles and we lost, um, I would rather be on the field doing it with my teammates. And uh, the way the way it went down is the day before the game, they're like, we're going to do this. We're going to change the brace up a little bit to let, maybe get a little bit more uh, movement in it. And um, as you could see when you said two pass breakups, if I just had a little more movement, I would have had three interceptions instead of one. So uh, it was the day of the game came around, and I was just ready to go, brace up as much as we can, and just play through pain. And just because it's football, you got to have pain somewhere. So I'm glad it was on me, and I could save, uh, help the help the Razorbacks win that day for sure. I'm glad that you brought that up because the arm brace, if you know, like you could have probably picked five or six different spots last year where there were plays that they were just in and out of your hands, and it looked like you were going to be able to make that play, and then you just couldn't. But like in baseball, like when a guy makes an error in baseball, they look down at the glove and they like blame the glove for the error. I think what you could have done in those spots is just like look down at the arm brace and blame the arm brace. Did you ever think about doing something like that? No. Um, and I, I could name you every single, every single one and I'd tell you exactly what I'd do. I would clap and I'd look at Bumper, <laughs> I'd look at Joe or Jalen and I would clap and I'd look at them and be just say, gosh dang it. I should have had that. I'm sorry. I let y'all down on that. And they're like, no, you're good. At least you knocked it down. I texted A&M was one of them. And me and Bump ran into each other. I could have had the ball in my hands. He ran into me. And he didn't. I didn't blame him. He didn't get mad at me because he thought he could have picked it. We just. I just said, dang it, I should have caught it. Um, I don't know. I've never been big on excuses. I guess that goes back to my high school days with my coach. Uh, but we just, I don't know. I just, I wish. I would have had an arm brace on or I could extend it all the way, but I'll never use that excuse because who knows, maybe I played a certain way with that arm brace knowing in my mind and I could just elude people better. And so I'll never change it for that. Well, so then that, that leads to the obvious question here. You know, are you going to do like what Richard Hamilton did back in the day? He was the NBA player who had the face injury and then it was healed. And so he kept the face mask because he just liked how it felt, even though he didn't have an injury anymore. You know, you bring up the point about playing better with the brace. Are you now going to be a guy who just like rocks the arm brace all the time? Definitely not. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> uh, we had spring ball this past year and or this, this year and, I didn't have an arm brace on, and it was probably the best thing ever. I, I, I was extending it all. I was catching interceptions. I was I was playing like a new man. Like, I took a step above what I did last year. So, uh, I said I could have been playing good last year because of the arm brace, but I'm playing even better now without it. So, I'll, I'll definitely keep it with all, off. I'm, uh, I'm sure the national accolades after that game, the, the Ole Miss game, I'm sure they were great, but – you're a married man. Um, you couldn't walk into the door that day and really milk that injury at home. Like you tell your wife you can't do dishes and take out the trash, and then she's probably like, "Buddy, I, I just watched you rack up 19 tackles. Get to work." Is that pretty much how that played out? Yes, yes. And I, and I have a tough wife too. She's torn both her ACLs, so she has no pity for me and her arms. So Dang. she, uh, she has no pity for me. She's gonna always make me work. Goodness gracious! I saw that she's she's tougher on you than than the coaching staff. Explain that for those of I mean those of us who are in that spot know exactly what you're talking about. But for the rest of the outside world who might not realize that dynamic, explain what that's like. Yeah, so she was a college athlete, and so she knows exactly what it goes through, and she knows how hard I work. The thing that she does so well is. She's my physical trainer at home. She's my cook at home. She's my maid at home. She's my best friend at home. Like she does everything, and 
So my my part to give back to her is to give her my everything and everything I do. So like when I go work hard, like I want her to push me, and she definitely loves pushing me because she likes she likes knowing what we do can pay off in the end and how we do it. So um, the way she does it is just good for me, knowing that I have another year now. Especially she's like we're not going to go and try to make this anything less than what you did. So we need to continue pushing and do what we've been doing that worked and figure out that didn't and change it. So um, I think she's probably the smartest person I know just because she just knows exactly how things should be done and uh, and pushes me. She knows how to push my buttons, we'll say that, to make me want to go harder or do something. So uh, she definitely is – she's done so much for me that I couldn't imagine. You, uh, you sort of epitomized why the Arkansas defense was so improved last year, when, especially when you guys were healthy. I asked Coach Pittman about this when I had him on the pod a few months ago, but I'm curious what your take is. When Barry Odom showed up, was there a moment when you guys realized that things were going to be different? Yeah. Um, I honestly, me personally, me being older and um, playing, I played for four defense coordinators already by then, and Barry was my uh, fourth, actually. So, I knew he was good the way he handled himself, the way the defense fit, uh, the players that we had. Um, I pride myself on knowing defenses and knowing the concepts because I've been under four different ones. And the way Coach Odom has done, like, his defense and molded around what fit our guys best, I knew it before the season. I knew it was in fall camp. Uh, But I think as a team and as a full team, I think the first half of Georgia when we were beating them, uh, I think by two points, uh, I think it showed the team how good we could be as a defense. Um, I think it showed the whole team how good we could be as a team. But I think realistically knowing the deep, like the players that Georgia had, they had George Pickens, they had a really good O-line, good, good running back. Um, I think it showed exactly who we could be as a defense, and it gave us confidence for the rest of the year. And that's why I think the next game we went out and beat Mississippi State, the team that just knocked off the defending champions. So, um I, I definitely think that was the real, real – we went into halftime thinking, all right, this can be legit. So, after that game, even though we ended up getting beat, after that game really showed our defense and showed the leaders on defense, like, listen, this is our year. We can do it. So, uh, we just continue to lead after that. There were so many times watching you when it just felt like you knew exactly what the offense was about to do. And it wasn't just you, like, spying the quarterback like you did against Ole Miss – how much of that, in the way that that played out throughout last season, how much of that was your natural instincts, and how much of that was just having a coach like Barry Odom who was going to put you in the right spots? Um, I'd say probably half and half, really. Um, I'd say 50-50. Our coaches do a really good job on telling us what we can do uh, when they get in certain formations. Um, my linebacker coach last year, Coach Rhodes, and then our linebacker coach this year, Coach Shear, he was the analyst last year. They gave us really good like tips and stuff on what we can pick up and what we can hear. So about my big game that I – you can ask Coach Pittman about this one day. My big game that I think I really knew every single play was Tennessee. And if anyone ever goes back and watches that, you watch the TV copy. I call out almost every single one of their outside zones or any of their drop-back passes. Uh, they, had a, they had a bomb throw on a third and long on our side of the 40-yard line. And I turn around to our corner and I said, it's about to be a fade to you. And I turn around and signal pass right to you. And Garantano looks at me me and goes, no, it's not. And I look at him square in the eyes and I say, yes, it is. Watch. And he threw a fade right to the same guy. And we pass it down and it was intercepted. And I was patted down. And we ended up getting off the field. The next series, 
he looks at me, he's like, how do you know? And they called it again, checked it, and I said, all right, outside's on my side, bump, get ready. He looks at me and goes, no, it's not. Like, Garantano said, no, it's not. I was like, yes, it is. And they did the exact same thing. We got a tackle for loss. Ended up getting off the field two plays later. And so, uh, it's just that stuff right there, I, I think it's natural instinct to me catching on and figuring out what exactly it is. Um, but I think our coaches put us in a great position to win and knowing. And it's really just hard work before. Like, we, we prepare so much for games, so why not – do the little things to be able to get us those little knacks and get us those little uh, advantage over teams like that, that we know we have a good chance to win if we're just lined up right and know exactly what they're doing. That's incredible. That, that, that's, that, that's so amazing to hear because I had this theory throughout the, throughout the season last year that Barry Odom just did nothing but during the pandemic, but just sit there and watch film the entire time. And that prep that, that you guys did and the defensive staff did to be able to get ready for games like that, it was evident. And you guys were just in such better spots throughout last season. And I said, you know, coming into the season, look, Sam Pittman and Eli Drinkowitz, they have the toughest uphill climb imaginable with the pandemic, the all-SEC all schedule, all that stuff. But looking back, it feels like Pittman, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, it feels like Pittman was set up well to be able to just sort of roll with whatever awaited because the guy isn't stubborn, and I think you sort of needed that coach who could lighten things up in order to get you through some of those tough months. How did you see that play out with his personality really benefiting you guys going into the season? Yeah, um, Coach Pittman and Coach Browse and Coach Odom, Coach Fountain, they do great job as our coordinators and head coach to be able to figure out what we can do to win every game. And you heard me say, like, win every game, and that's how Pittman is. Pittman said last year we had the number one strength schedule. We played all SEC, blah, blah, blah. We're in a great spot to be able to show people what we can do as Arkansas Razorbacks. So every single day we came and his big thing was we're going to be blue-collared and we're going to go to work. Uh, we don't care what this social media says. We don't care what people are saying. We're the number one strength schedule. We're going to go over and So as soon as we got into – um, exactly what we were going to do and figure out exactly how we were going to do it. I think we really didn't care what was in front of us. And that was starting from Pittman from the day he got hired. Um, so we weren't, when COVID hit and we had to go home, we weren't nervous how people were going to work. We weren't nervous how people were going to come back. We, we were ready to go and we were, everyone was ready to go when we got back because we knew we had Coach Pittman as a leader and we knew what we were going to get into when we got back because all he believes in didn't work. So if you didn't work while you're gone, you you were gonna show out and like a sore thumb when you got back. Um, so it with uphill battle, like you said earlier, I think every year in the SEC, every team's got an uphill battle. Um, you talk about Bama going undefeated. You talk about them trying to win a national championship. They have an uphill battle. To do that every year. They've just been able to do it really well, um, and that's what they've been good at, and that's why they've been good. Um, so they got to be able to do that every year because it's the SEC. They're not easy games every game. They'll tell you that too. So. Um, we got to be able to go up every single game and be able to go and expect to win. I know you got to get out of here. You got some meetings uh, in a few minutes that you got to get to, but uh, I want to get you out with five rapid fire questions. It's just the first thing that comes to mind. Does that work for you? That's perfect. Excellent. I, I think I read that you're a country music guy. As Coach Pittman would say, who's on the jukebox right now for you? Uh, Chris Stapleton, all day, every day. Hey, man, good answer. Goodness gracious. I don't even know if we need the rest of these four. We just end on that one. Um, no, we'll still do the rest of these four here. Um, toughest SEC running back you've ever had to tackle? Um, 
uh, tank from Auburn. Uh, that kid, we played him in the rain, um, but by far he was the hardest one we played against last year. His lower half is just—it's unbelievable what he's been what he's been able to do. And saying that about a true freshman is a guy who, like yourself, has been around for for six years. That's that's really saying something. Um, okay, this is this is a bit tougher. Rank these three moments: getting married, getting put on scholarship, and getting named captain. And you got to answer that one carefully. Um, getting married by far uh, was the greatest day of my life. Um, and then number two was being named captain. Um, just because that, I think that is the greatest honor you can get as a team, as a, as a player, is to have your team vote for you as a captain. They respect you. Um, and then getting a scholarship. And those three might be the greatest moments of my life, um, other than giving my life to Christ when I was younger, um, which is over the top of all of them. So those three by far. This one, probably not good for rapid fire, but if you got a good rapid fire one, that works just fine. How would you, as a, as a linebacker, how would you fix targeting? Um, I would say the ejection rule should be destroyed. Um, I think that if you hit somebody hard and just because it's around and you lead with your shoulder, a.k.a. Jalen Catalan, uh, every single time last year, I think that mm. we should yeah. be able to rule that, that he wasn't leading with the head and it just happened to accidentally hit the head. Um, so I think you should be able to do a 15-yard penalty because you need to get – concussions are still real. You need to get them in the game still, or you need to get a penalty in the game. Uh, but the kid shouldn't lose his eligibility. He shouldn't lose everything he worked for just because he hit someone hard. Um, and then if it's blatant, where if it's like a quarterback standing in a pocket and you go head-to-head, then you got to take that out of the game. you got to eject him. If it's blatant, obvious that he meant to do it. Um, and I think that you're going to have to – at the end of the day, you're going to have to have someone in the booth that is straight up just for – these type of hits, you can't have on-field uh, people making these decisions because it's it's hard to do both. So I think you're gonna have someone specifically for this call, and I think that's what it'll end up being. Last one for you: a successful Arkansas season is what? Um, successful to us is we want to go out and win every single game. Um, but right now we're focused on Rice, no one else, um, and I mean that with every bit of my heart. Uh, we're focused on winning Rice, and then next week we'll be focused on winning whoever the next opponent is, and then the next one after that. Um, so right now we're trying to get ourselves better, uh, but Rice right now is our number one, and then, then I'll be able to talk to you about the season. I'm sorry, but that's all we're focused on. Next opponent's Texas. I'll, I'll, I'll keep track of that for you so you don't have to worry right. about that, um, but I'll, I'll make Appreciate sure that it. it's, it's, it's well known. Yeah. Uh, Grant, this has been great, man. Um, like I said, I know you got meetings to run to, so really, really appreciate the time. Best of luck with everything this season, and uh, I'm sure I'll see you at SEC Media Days next month. Yes, definitely. It was nice talking to you too, Connor. Let's talk about cardio. Will, you've gotten into cardio a, a little bit more, right? A little bit, yeah. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rank these for you. Running, elliptical, so, all right, so treadmill, elliptical, biking, rowing machine. If those four things are available at the gym, rank them in terms of which you're most likely to go on and which you are least likely to go on. Oh, I mean, rowing machines, it's here by itself. I'm, I'm kind of lanky. I'm gonna, it's a full like body that. workout. I feel like I can do a lot without doing much with that. I love some outdoor running. I got my shirt on today. This is a thick boy running club uh, with the Sasquatch on it. 
Uh, so I actually, I went to a chiropractor the other day. He's like, dude, you got to stop running because I'm like too heavy. But anyway, so, <laughs> so yeah, that's the thing. Like I love outdoor running, but up and down the hills of Georgia, not great on my body personally. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm usually pretty anti-elliptical because I feel like it looks ridiculous. Like I hate to say that, you know what I'm saying? But it's like, if I'm in there like really getting the arms going, like I look like Matt Foley. From uh, from uh, SNL, the Chris Farley character. <laughs> My name is Matt Foley, and I am on the elliptical. You know what I'm saying? So like, I don't. I would put that by itself on the bottom, and then you kind of see my list. I am not living in a van down by the river. I can promise you that. I would probably go rowing, running, elliptical, and biking. But if I did, if I did leg day, or I had some sort of injury, you know. Knees hurting, ankles hurting, something like that. Elliptical is probably at the top, and rowing and running are probably near the bottom. Although maybe I would still do rowing. It depends on what the injury. Can't, you can't really do rowing with a knee injury. Yep. That doesn't really work. That hurts because it's a good full body workout. You're exactly right. But don't get it twisted. I enjoy running as a form of exercise, and I'm not one of those people who gets a runner's high, but. I do like the way that it makes me feel. That's why I do cardio now. I like the way that it, it at least makes me feel like I can control my weight and I can kind of stay within a, like a five pound range for the most part when I know I have that element as part of my workouts. And I've gotten way more into it since the pandemic started. Went from being like kind of a standard three miles guy, maybe once or twice a week, to now I do cardio at least four or five times a week um, and then usually on Wednesdays, I do a long run day between like six or seven miles. So usually it ends up being like a 10K. And I used to do seven, like back in the day, I used to do seven miles every day. Wow. That was, yeah, not healthy, not totally healthy, but it started back when I was going into um, my senior year of college. I wanted to lose weight. So all I did was run and it worked again, not super healthy, not advocating for that um, because I went about it the wrong way. Diet really was all about like low calorie stuff. I wasn't really going into the fruits and veggies in the way that I should have. It was more just about get those five miles of running in five and then ramped up to seven. Um, but Connor, again, I mean, went from Bud heavy to Bud light. That was a whole dietary style change. I'll tell you what, I got rid of pop too. That was a big thing. If you're ever trying to lose weight, cut pop out of your diet, no, soda, whatever you want to You got to cut pop out of your, your vocabulary, pop. first off. But I know, I know. <laughs> I walked right into that. Goodness. It worked though. I lost like 35 pounds, which for, I, I weighed, I weighed a buck 90 going into that, that senior year of college. True story. It's just five, eight, you know, buck 90. Not, not great. Not exactly, you know, bulked up with muscle at that point in my life either. Um, but I got competitive with running for a bit after I graduated. I did a 5K like 21 minutes, and I think the best 10K time I did was around 45 minutes. But then, like most people who run a lot, I hit, I hit the wall. Cardio, in my opinion, and we're gonna get to the Facebook group and people who agree with this sentiment as well, cardio can get really boring. <laughs> and as you said, it's a lot of pounding on your legs, Great for short and long-term health, but you've got to do it right. Cross-training really helps. And a lot of people mix in biking, and you know that's, that's really big right now to be able to kind of incorporate that. You can't just be an all-runner person. Don't be the person who just runs five miles every day and then gets one pair of running shoes a year. That's really bad. 
Um, Got to rotate the running shoes a little bit more if you're doing that. Got to use the foam roller. I, that is an underused thing for me that I need to really start to get back into it. Um, but I like running. I like cardio. Still do a really good amount of it. I've done a half marathon. I also, though, don't have the 13.1 sticker on the car. So did I really do a half marathon? I guess not. Um, I, I, I don't think I'll ever do a full one, though. I don't necessarily have that drive. Maybe I'll hit age 40 and then I'll decide that I need to. I, I don't know. For now... I like variety. I like being able to do different things. Will, during cardio, music, no music, or podcast? See, I was about to say, I think you're a psychopath and you listen to podcasts, right? You are correct. I couldn't, dude. I So I got to send you these things. This is a side tangent. But if you look on SoundCloud, just look up Big Booty Mix, right? These It's called the Two Friends Big Booty Mix. Say what now? Let me finish. It's these two EDM okay. DJs. And I promise you, you'll be like, Will, what are you talking about? That's what I thought, too. Go look up on SoundCloud or on Spotify, Big Booty Mix. And go play, like, number 19 or number 13. There's, like, 20 of them. And it's, like, every hit song from the last, like, 30 years with, like, EDM vibes interspersed. Dude, you can put that on and look up in two hours and be, like, eight miles down the road. And you're like, oh, wow, I'm, this is it. And you're saying while cardio, not while you're at the club. Like this is this is something that that gets you going. Yeah, because it'll change the pace every like 30 seconds or so. So so your mind will okay. kind of reset, and it's like now I'm listening to this new song. I'm re-energized. I don't hate that. I don't hate that as a podcast guy while running. I don't hate that. And I've gone through spurts where I like music as well, but for whatever reason, I don't know. That's where I liked being able to to kind of catch up with it. And I'm not one of those people who like runs to the sound of music and, and needs that extra burst. I kind of go based on just how my body's feeling. But I'm sure sometime within the year, I'll get back into it. I'll, I'll have a Pandora phase where for like two or three months, it's nothing but that. So it's coming. I'm not necessarily anti that. I just have probably like four or five podcasts in addition to this one. Connor's that just are furiously in- listening to the NPR Politics <laughs> podcast, just like staccato, just ready to go. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're all part of the rotation. I just listened to one on Counterclock. I like, I like the occasional true crime podcast. True, true crime podcast done right. This is totally unrelated to cardio. I don't know why I'm bringing this up right now. But for those who don't listen to true crime podcasts, do so on a plane. <laughs> when you're not feeling your best... So there's something about it that, because I'm not, I'm not one of these people who just can get on a plane and sleep for two and a half hours, like I'm perfectly fine. But there's something about listening to a true crime podcast and the good ones I'm talking about, not season two of Serial. We don't, we don't associate that with a good true crime podcast. But I, I, I don't know, for whatever reason, that's, that's always been my, my preferred choice. But Let's get back to cardio, because that's the subject for today, for figuring it out. And I know it's something that a lot of people have a lot of opinions about. So we took to the Facebook group, Drew Page. He says, I don't really exercise, but when I do cardio, I always have metal, death metal, slash death core. That sounds intense. And maybe some folk music playing. Somehow a great combo. You know what? I can't sit here and tell you that listening to a true crime podcast while running is perfectly fine, but folk music is bad. I can't sit here and say that. So I'm just going to blindly say that that's okay. I'm going to have to do a Google search to figure out what deathcore is. You won't like it. I'm here to tell you right now. Okay. All right. But Drew, 
That, that sounds perfectly fine. Matthew Sedro says, started doing cardio again during quarantine. I prefer to do cycling or uphill power walks on a treadmill, but I will occasionally run as well. Despite my efforts, running is still the worst thing I put myself through. I tell myself it will be different every time, but it still sucks just as much. Does running for you ever make you feel good immediately after, Will? Yes, but like the next activity you do is so pivotal because like if you go from running to like like you like sit down and start working or something and you're like ready to go, you can ride that high for like a couple of hours. If you sit down and throw on a show, dude, I'm out. I agree. It's definitely one of those things that I feel like my body doesn't always respond to right after very well. And what I've started doing a lot more is I'll do three mile runs and then I'll get in, you know, a hit workout afterwards or something like that. Or I'll, I'll go in the garage and not so much hit as, 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 as it is weight training, but I'll do something like that where I'll need like that full three or four minutes to kind of get my heart rate down a little bit. I still want it elevated, but I need to get it down a little bit. Otherwise I'm going to get like that first set into a lift and I'm just going to feel like absolute death. But I think a lot of people don't run because they wake up the next day and they're sore with things that like prevents them from doing everyday, everyday things. Like not being able to feel like you could walk the next day, that's extreme. But I hate that feeling of breaking in a new pair of running shoes and you have that blister the next day. And you think to yourself, why, why did I run? Like why do I do this? What's, what's the whole point of this? And there's always that moment of questioning, I feel like, um, for, for everyone. And Matthew Sager also adds here, as to, as to how I get through it, I have a Spotify playlist of high energy EDM that makes the workout more impactful than listening to a podcast would. And he puts in parentheses, podcasts are my normal workout music. I'm in the minority here. I know that. I'm not denying it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to preach it. I'm, I'm a weird guy. I can fully admit that. Like my podcast. So hold on. Hold on. Let's say that you, like you're loading up like a max on like a deadlift or a bench or something. Are you sticking with the NPR Politics podcast, or at that point you're gonna throw on like some, some drift away or something? <laughs> what makes you think I'm listening to NPR Politics? <laughs> I'm just. Thinking. I mean, you're not. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I still will leave on whatever whatever podcast I have. I I don't know. It, that's just. I I'm more I'm more in my head about what I'm trying to do, and 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 to be fair, I'm also at this stage of my life not doing max out stuff or anything like that um, because you got got the home gym. Not exactly built for that. Mm -hmm. But back in the day when I had the gym membership and and that was something that I was very much into, I didn't even bring headphones there most of the time. I wasn't bringing a podcast to the gym. I just, you know, if gym is playing music, I'll just go with that. I'm just not, I don't want to be reliant on that, you know? Because then what if I don't have it? Or what if I'm not in that situation? I don't know. It just never has really been something I've stuck with. I wish I could be like that, honestly. Like, I have to, like, if I know I'm going to do something heavy, I have to, like, have the song for that moment or I'm out of my element. So you're absolutely right. Like, that, your, your approach is definitely better to that. 
Derek Walden, he says, in spring slash summer, usually a few minutes around 15 before the workout and another 15 to 30 after the workout, I stick to the elliptical stair stepper or intervals on the treadmill. During the winter, just 10 to 15 minutes before the workout. He's got a whole routine here. And if you can do it without music or watching something, you're clinically insane and might need to see a psychiatrist. <laughs> well, Derek, I'll tell you what, man. I am clinically insane. And you're perfectly fine to think that. Look, the ability to do it before and after and know that that is still there, that's still waiting for you at the end of a workout is a great skill to be able to have. I love kind of doing that now and I'll mix that up where sometimes at the end of a workout, if you can do, maybe maybe it's a two mile run or something like that, just to kind of keep that heart rate elevated and, and to make sure that by the end of your workout, you feel gassed. That's, that's ultimately the goal of most workouts. Now, if you're doing some band work or something like that, that's not necessarily your goal. You're doing pliability stuff, shout out to TB12. It's different. But if you wanna feel like you just worked out and like you're making, I hate to be a meathead here. If you wanna feel like you're making those gains, that's not a bad way to do it. I like Derek's strategy here of, of having that planned amount, not necessarily overdoing it, and, and that's, there's, there are a lot of people who's, who will tell you, you're only hurting yourself by doing long runs. I do them like once a week where I really kind of stretch it out just because I like doing it. I like having something to kind of strive for as well. But Derek is, is I, I think, right on the money for wanting to, to limit it and to also incorporate that into your workouts as well, like being able to do both things. Well, see, that's how my dumb self gets in trouble is like I'll get out there and I'll get all my gear on and I'll get ready to go and I'll get to three miles and I'm just like, ah, I can do six. And then, buddy, can't I? Like, I, like I'll, <laughs> I'll do it and then I'll feel, you know what I'm saying? But then once I try to do it, I'll be in the exact same situation a couple days later and I'm like, oh, you can't, no. You just know though, you hit that point where you just know. And there are some times when you try and add that run at the end of a lift or something like that, and it just does not go well. And you feel like you're running in quicksand the entire time. And you look down at your watch and you're like, I am running a nine minute mile pace right now. This is not good. I should probably have not done this run today. Yes, runs can hurt you, you're absolutely right. Alexandra Nicole says, as an adult, I love going to the gym. I mostly do the treadmill for a half hour. I try to go every day around 6.15 a.m. Dang, that's early. That's the only bad part is the early morning. I can't work out in the evening. I have to have music, mostly country, but I do some classic rock and pop as well. Are you now 100% early morning workout guy? I, I'd probably say I'm about 70-30 early morning. Okay. Uh, I'm about to do one at like six or seven a day, but just cause like my schedule and John's schedule have been crazy and we, we usually like are on the same program. So if we miss a day and it's like a whole thing. So yeah, but no, I mean, if you, that's the way I explained it to him the other day is like, if you wake up in the morning and you're angry and all you feel is anger, it's so much better than if you have a whole day worth of stuff and you almost get apathetic towards the end of the day. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, I'm done with my day. This day really can't get any better or worse. It's like, no, if you, you wake up and you feel like if I crush this workout, the rest of my day will be successful versus having your day go however it goes. And then you're like, I got to get through this and go eat. There are a lot of people, my wife included, who the last thing that they want to do is come back from a full day of work and, and, and go to the gym. And whether that's cardio or whatever, whatever it is, it is really difficult to have that knowing that that still lingers. 
And that, that can be, I mean, as we talk about mental health here, this is Mental Health Awareness Month. That's something that you gotta find out what works for you. You gotta find, you, you might hate your workout, but don't necessarily hate it because of the time of day that you're doing it. Find out the best possible time. And for everybody that's different, and that's just, I, I don't necessarily find that my workouts are definitively better in the morning versus at night. I work out at different times of the day throughout my entire week. Because you're that's just one of the situation independent. I, I envy that so much. You don't need I music. Try you, don't, you probably eat the same way every day. Like That is really the goal. I have the same breakfast and lunch every day. Yes, <laughs> um, I'm a man of routine in that way. But I, I like mixing it up in that, in that way. And I do so because I have a schedule that allows it where you know, on, on Mondays, you know, I know Mondays is going to be like, you know, at least four thirty, five o'clock is when the workout's going to get in. Whereas Friday, I like, I know that, you know, Lauren and I are going to go out for, for dinner or something like that. So I'm not going to save my workout until, you know, five o'clock, five 30. I'm going to usually, you know, she wakes up for swimming at four fifty-five in the morning on Fridays, usually two or three times a week. And then I'll sometimes wake up at like, depending on how I feel. Sometimes it's 5.30 and then other times it's like 6.15, 6.30 to get that workout in before the day. And then it's like, boom, the weekend's here and we're, and we're good and I don't have that saved to the end of the day. But some people just will refuse to do it after work. And if it, if it weighs on you that much, I, I don't disagree with that. I think there's nothing wrong with that. Um, Randall Lockhart, just three words here. Rower all day. Yes, sir. I, the rower's great. It is an underrated piece of equipment that I did not really get into until about two, three years ago. And once you start with it and you realize that it's a full body workout, like you mentioned, it is fantastic. And you could do it for 20 minutes. And I don't know what the, what the calorie count is for that, like the ratio of that compared to just straight running or if you're doing biking, elliptical, whatever. But if you want that gassed feeling at the end of a workout, hop on the rower. At the end, at the end of a lift, and maybe not after leg day or something like that, but at the end of a lift, if you do the rower, you're, you're going to feel that you're going to feel that that full cardio workout, that whole experience. My mother-in-law got a. We always make the joke that like my in-laws, I love going and spending time with them up in Indianapolis, and it's they have everything just set up in the way that I would want to, you know, as much food as you could ever dream of. They just have in their pantry and they're in the fridge at all times, whatever. And they have all this workout gear and stuff like that because my mother-in-law likes to wake up early. She's a wake up early and lift type of person. She got a rower machine and put it in the guest bedroom. So now whenever I go there, there is literally a rower machine one step away from the bed. And it's tremendous. And I'm so grateful for it. But yes, Randall Lockhart, rower all day. Emery Picker. He says, Will, you're going to relate to this. He says, if you lift heavy enough and with enough intensity, it gets your heart rate above that 130 to 140 range and keeps it there. Also, it's called Cardi No, but on a serious note, I try to do 15 to 20 minutes a day and typically watch some college football game from the past with a lot of scoring and offense. I love this idea. Last week, I watched Notre Dame, Texas 2016 in 15 minute intervals. And this week, I'm on LSU, Texas 2019. By the way, that's big of Emory coming from a Georgia guy. If anyone has any suggestions on games to watch, hit me up. That's a good way to get through cardio. I would be perfectly on board with doing something like that as opposed to just having the podcast format. You can get a lot of these games now condensed down into 15, 20 minutes if you want to get everything out of it. Or if you want to follow the Adjustment More philosophy of watching the game in its entirety, 
I recommend doing that as well. Will, have you ever done that before? No. That is, see, I gotta, whenever I get down to Athens, I gotta get a beer with Emory or something because each of these little life tips, I feel like you should like write a book. Uh, Emory, I'll say this, man. If you haven't thought of this one yet, 2013 LSU Georgia, man, that's gonna be yours because as an LSU loss with Odell Beckham and Jarvis Landry and Zach Mittenberger, to this day, I've never seen LSU, well, now I've seen LSU play worse defense, but at the time, I, so that would be a perfect one because I think the final score was like 46 to 43 or something. But yeah, no, that's that's actually a good point that you can do kind of a hit workout or you can do a high intensity like lifting workout and get cardio in. I just know me personally, like if I thought that way, I would never do cardio again. <laughs> so mm. I have to kind of like lie to myself and be like, you need to do this, bro. Or alternatively, instead of watching that game, go back into the archives, Saturday Down South podcast. Yep. Go back and find it and it just meant more because we did that game. Yep. It was in the beginning, I want to say that was like April of last year, April of 2020, I think is my guess. So if you want to be a podcast guy while you work out temporarily, I'd say that's a good game to do it with. But, or you could always do the will thing, of course. Lauren, my wife, she says, my thoughts on exercise, always. And it is the gif of Ann Perkins from Parks and Rec, wherein she says, jogging is the worst. I know it keeps you healthy, but God, at what cost? (laughs) She's not wrong. She's not wrong. Cruz Loera says, Cruz says, cardio is the price I have to pay to look good naked. Here's a question. I'm not going to get into the the details of how good (laughs) Cruz looks naked, but here's a question. If cardio didn't make you look any different, you knew going in, it is not going to change your physical appearance 1%, but it instead just made you feel good. Instead, it gave you, you know, endorphins later in the day, and instead you just felt better overall, but you looked the exact same way. Would you do it? Are you talking about drugs? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I... I mean, there's, that's, that's kind of a way to consider it. It seems like drinking without a hangover. I mean, so maybe, yeah, I guess. I mean, well, if the pain's still there, probably no. Like, if I still have to be sore without losing weight, I would probably just, you know, I don't know. That's, that's a key caveat in there to probably <laughs> to include. If you had to be sore, yes, that would still probably suck to not look better naked because of doing cardio. Andrew Diaz He says, I am a mail carrier with a walking route. Does that count as cardio? I think it still counts. I think the Apple Watch would still track that. Other than that, I ride my bike to the gym and around the lake one to three times a week, depending on if I'm stuck at work all day delivering OT or if I get forced in on my day off. Um, And he said, also, Connor, if you're wondering about how much I walk at work, it's about four miles a day with no OT. He said his steps are usually around 20,000. That's, that's without overtime. 20,000 steps is a lot. He said the record with overtime was 33,000 steps. 33,000 steps in a day? I don't know if I've done that. You're not on your feet the day after. <sighs> I didn't have the Apple Watch for the, um, for the, the half marathon. Again, it's not on my car, the sticker, but I did indeed run a half marathon. I would be very curious what it was like that day because we ran most of it, but then walked at certain points. I would tend to think it's probably 
not quite. It's, it, that's probably closer to 20,000 though. I would think. I would think. I don't know. Maybe somebody can confirm that. That's a lot of steps, man. A lot of steps. Hope you got those Dr. Scholl's inserts. Definitely need those. I'll say real quick. We don't Robert think Bell's. our mail carriers enough. So that is, uh, that's hard, man. Good job. We appreciate you. Yeah, thank you, Andrew, for for all of that. Getting getting mail is one of the, the great little little joys of life. Robert Fellows says, my cardio purely consists of walking through my neighborhood three to four days a week. I walk two to four miles each time, and when I do it alone, I'm usually listening to a podcast. Hopefully this one as well. Robert, big Arkansas guy, Robert Fellows is. Jay Woody, he says, I hated it my whole life until I found fighting. What if I just stopped there and just didn't say the rest of his answer? That'd be great. No, I wouldn't do that. You let me box or do some MMA and I enjoy it. All other cardio is evil and from Satan himself. I always tell everyone that I never intend to run for my life. All you do then is die out of breath. I've thought about this as well. People say cardio is going to extend your life. I want... when. My time comes and hopefully I'm getting to the pearly gates. I want that full breakdown. If I can get a breakdown on my watch of what my heart rate was during a specific workout, I want the full body breakdown of how much time I spent doing cardio and how much time that added to my life. So at least in that, that next life, when that comes, hopefully, I can look down and say, I regretted that or I'm glad I did that. I want that moment of clarity. Is is that asking for too much? I feel like you're gonna get to the pearly gates and it's gonna open up, it's just gonna be Chris Collinsworth. And he's gonna be like, hey, here's a guy and there's gonna be like a PFF breakdown of your whole life. It's gonna be like total miles run, total curse words uttered, total like like all these little different stats. You're gonna be like, wow, this is all worth it. What's my yards after contact? <laughs> just a random yards after contact thrown in there. It's like, that's respectable. Played 35 snaps out of the slot in 2018. Um, yeah, that'd be great. I would really like to see that. There's Jay is Jay's right though. There is a a cost benefit type of thing here that a lot of people really have to weigh. And if you hate it, if you absolutely hate it, just find whatever kind of cardio works. There's a lot. Cardio doesn't just have to be running. That, that was the common misconception that I had back when I was starting to do weight loss and back when I did cross country and all that stuff. Is I thought there was no other way. There are a lot of other ways. You just got to find what works for you. Yeah, I'll say real quick, you know, you know that, um, you know, I did MMA for a long time. You knew me back when I was like real skinny. I told you that story about like the fight I was in and I everything. And yeah, that, I, I wish I could get back to that. I, I wish I could get back to, because there's nothing like, you know, you were talking about with athletes, like live contact. It's like, there's a dude right there who's trying to kill you. Like not really, but like men mentally. And you can't, or kind of, you know, but yeah, like you're trying to, you know, beat you up. So there's, you know, there's no way to simulate that. So to me, that is the best kind of cardio ever is to be in a ring, you know, fighting for your life out there. Because when you win an event like that, it's the best feeling in the world. Shadow boxing as well. Mm -hmm. For those who haven't done that, do shadow boxing for about five minutes at a time. You'll get the heart rate up. Good way to talk, talk about full body workouts, be able to kind of finish, finish something off. Definitely recommend Pretend that. Pretend there's an Ohio State Pre fan right in front of you and just, oh. Do what you got to do. Do what you got to do and make it work. Christopher Zahor will end on this. He says, I go through weird stretches where for about a month, I'll run like five miles a day. Then I don't run for another two to three months. My fiance likes to come with me sometimes, then gets pissed when I try to talk to her while we run because she's out of breath. That's, 
I get the, that in the other way. Um, so I typically just enjoy running by myself with my workout playlist on Spotify, mostly rap, but sometimes you need a little screamo music to get you through. I don't know what screamo is. Is that of anything, uh, is that like, um, uh, what did Drew Page bring up? Deathcore, is that, is that similar? Very different. Those two fan bases hate each other. So screamo is more of like, um, you know, that's, that's gonna be kind of a fusion between metal and a little bit more of that old school emo music. So it's, I'll, I'll shoot you a playlist. The Simple Plan part of that? No, not even a little bit. That's not emo enough. That's too mainstream. You know, but no, but they kind of have emo influences though a little bit. A little bit of dashboard confessional. That's considered like OG emo. I think Marler's a big dashboard guy. Really big dashboard guy, I think. Mm -hmm. Fallout Boy. Original Fallout Boy, is that emo? They're, screamo? again, no, they're not screamo, but they're like original emo. They're pop punk, but they have influences of emo a little bit. Every time I hear pop punk, I just think Blink-182. Can't think anything else. They're the goats. That is the only, only thing. They are the goats. Thank you for everybody who has answered questions and figuring it out. If you haven't yet, you totally should. You should hear your name read on air. If you have not left us a five-star review, now is a great time to head over to iTunes, wherever you get your podcast, and go do that. Subscribe so you don't just have to listen to random episodes here and there. Go subscribe to our newsletter. Go subscribe to College Football Uncensored, the newest podcast from Saturday Down South. Do that wherever you get your podcast. Join the Facebook group and hear your name on Figuring It Out. Thanks, guys. Talk soon. Thank you.